Thanks, Adrian. Good morning. Those that know me, my name is Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here. What a great passage. What a great passage. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus and his disciples walking between Jerusalem and Galilee. It's a distance of about 120 kilometres for about the distance between here and Gosford. We're going to look at this encounter with this woman at the well. Let me just pray before we begin. Our Lord, we thank you that we can read so much of your character in the Scriptures, your love for people and your desire to make your will known to them. Our Lord, as we look at this uh, fantastic chapter in John chapter 4, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your Spirit's teaching this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, let me put a map I'm not sure you can see that too much, but the bottom green arrow there is Jerusalem. And Jesus had, uh, was travelling on his way to the top green arrow to the district of Galilee. As I said, it's about 120 kilometres, about distance from here to Gosford. So it's a good few days' walk. Uh, the roads were paved. He didn't have a chariot or a donkey at that point. So he was walking. Verses uh, 5 to 7 read that he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. That's the way it's supposed to be pronounced, not Sychar. And it was near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And we've heard from the reading of Genesis how Jacob came to that place. Sychar was the, in Jesus' time, the name of the city or town of Shechem. Just keep that park there. It becomes relevant later. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was middle of the day, about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, the Samaritans have a rather interesting history. They trace their ancestry way back to the tribe of Joseph, one of the twelve tribes of Jews of 12 tribes of Israel. Get that out. When the kingdom of Israel split into two after Solomon's reign, the northern tribes made Shechem their capital. Now Shechem was located at the base of Mount Gerizim, which was the Mount of Blessing. Um, And the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim, and Mount of Ebal, Mount Ebal was the blessing, the Mount of Curses, uh, was relevant when Joshua invaded the land of Canaan, and they came to this place between these two mountains, and they read the law of God, the blessings and the curses, which sort of was supposed to undergird how their community was being established. So here we are at Shechem, located at the base of Mount Gerizim. Now, the northern tribes built a place of worship at Mount Gerizim so the people wouldn't be tempted to travel to Jerusalem to worship in Solomon's temple. He also built one at Bethel and Dan. We haven't time to go into the uh, history of the northern tribes, but suffice to say in 722 BC, this is 700 years before Christ, the Assyrians conquered that northern part of the um, land of Israel. And what they did is they deported many of the people and then replaced them with settlers from other nations. 
And the result of, that's resulted in a, in a blending of religions. The northern tribes were very much characterised by pagan idol worship, and then these newcomers also brought their beliefs. And so he sort of ended up with a blend of religious belief, uh, blending pagan beliefs with the belief in God of the Israelites, the Hebrews. Now by the time of Jesus, this area of Samaria, which I've got outlined on, uh, on the map there, there were about a million Samaritans living in that part of the world at that time. Now the scriptures, they, they, they had scriptures, but it was basically a variation of the Old Testament Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. But there were differences with their scriptures to the Hebrew scriptures that we're more familiar with. They also had their own religious manuscripts, but you could sort of regard them more like a Jewish sect. Over the centuries, post-Jesus time, they managed to retain their identity, but they were severely persecuted by the Muslim invaders for over a thousand years, so that by the turn of the 20th century, there were barely a hundred Samaritans, the people who call themselves Samaritans, left. Today there are about 800 still living around Mount Gerizim on the edge of what is now the city of Nablus, a city of about a million people in Israel. And then in one of the suburbs of Nablus you can see the ruins of ancient Shechem. And nearby, look at the photo, there's an Eastern Orthodox church which has been built over Jacob's well. This is sort of this church was built, I think, in the 1980s. But uh, there was a succession of churches built on this spot over Jacob's well. The well, but it's inside of the church, and then the well still exists to this day. And you can see the bucket; it's actually got some water in it. And the well's um, about 40 metres deep, so it's a long way down. And you can actually visit there. There's a random tourist there who's actually uh, standing beside the well. In a moment when there was no crowds of people around it. In Jesus' time, this well was about a kilometre from the village of Sekar, which, as I said, was another name for Shechem. Now, the fact that the Samaritan woman in this story used this well tells us an important piece of information about her. You see, there was another well right in the middle of the village, but she didn't use that one. She walked every day about a kilometre outside the village to this Jacob's well where she drew water. And she also came to draw water in the middle of the day, which is not really the dumb thing because she tended to draw water at the end of the day when it was a lot cooler. But she did this because she didn't want to meet in other people. And uh, she wanted to avoid the other women in the village because when they gathered around to draw water, they gossiped and they chatted about what was going on. But this lady was something like a social outcast. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit in a, in a few moments. But essentially, as we come to this passage in John chapter 4, it teaches us a lot about how we share the good news of Jesus, how we give the message of new life. And I just want to work through the passage and encourage you to see how Jesus breaks down the barriers to share this message 
with the, with the woman and then later on with the other villagers. Notice the process. Keep your eyes on the tree over there. What's it say? Connect, care, communicate and commit. Is this where you got this from, Stuart? Yep. <laughs> okay. Firstly, notice how Jesus starts the conversation. He asks for a drink. And the woman was somewhat surprised. And she says in verse 9, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you possibly ask me for a drink? You see, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Even more than that, Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. But Jesus actually asked her for a drink, and that catches her attention. He found a way to actually connect with her and break down the barriers between them. You know, one of the ways to a conversation is to ask for help in meeting a genuine need in your life. Jesus didn't say, can you give me a drink? Can I pull the water up for you? Instead, he asked the woman to give him a drink. Then the next thing Jesus does, he appeals to her curiosity. He says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That really made sense, didn't it? You think about it, start of the conversation, he's talking about living water. What does he mean? He's talking to this thirsty woman in the middle of the day outside this little village of Sekar about living water. You know, when you want to communicate the good news of Jesus, when you're talking about Jesus to someone, you have to move from what is known to the unknown. You have to move from a felt need to the real need. You have to say something like, I know someone who can begin to clean up the mess in your life. I know someone who can begin to restore the relationships in your life. He'll give, your relation, he'll give you relationships that are satisfying and meaningful. So you move from a felt need to the real need. Now, this all happens very quickly in the story. It is a process. But the woman thought she needed water. But Jesus offers her instead living water. And you know, if you want to really appeal to someone's mind or intellect, you get them to begin asking questions. And you've got to help them to do it in that process. So you drop things that will actually encourage them to ask questions. Don't forget Jesus for the Curious. It's a really great course. I encourage you to jump into that if you have questions about Jesus and what we believe. So what happened, this is what happened to this woman. She says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And then here's the clincher. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, firstly, she starts asking questions. But sometimes that's not the thing we're most scared of. That's the thing we're most scared of. People will ask some questions. We think people are going to ask questions we don't know the answers to. Are we going to feel inadequate because we don't know the answers? That's true. But notice Jesus doesn't immediately answer all this woman's questions. The significant thing is he gets her to begin asking those questions. 
So don't be afraid of people's questions when you're talking about Jesus. There is no shame in admitting you don't know the answer. I've studied for years and I still don't know the answers to some questions that people ask me. It's no crime to admit that you don't know. But go and research it, go and look up the answers, see what you can find out and then bring the answer back to the person. That shows that you care. Well, the woman asks in verse 12, are you greater than their father Jacob? And that was something that could really stir up the Jews, particularly Jewish men. Here's the Samaritan saying, referring to Jacob as our father. Now, as everyone knows, Jacob was the father of the Israelites, not the Samaritans. And that generally would have started a huge argument. She's sort of throwing this one out there just to see how he's going to respond. But Jesus didn't react. You see, when sharing the good news about Jesus, it's important not to get into an argument. Arguments get us nowhere. So the next thing Jesus does is he appeals to her desire. He says to her, I've got some living water. Everyone who drinks this water, the water in this well, this 40 metre deep well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here Jesus appeals to her desire. He says he can meet needs in her life that she didn't even even know she had. And just imagine this living water. It flows constantly and is a constant source of life and energy. It's like a mountain spring, fresh and bubbling up, full of life. That's the image that's given here. It's as living water. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who can meet the needs, the real needs, not just the felt needs, I can meet the real needs in your life. And it doesn't matter how much you want. It doesn't matter how much you have in life, whether that be material possessions or whatever. We always still want more. But Jesus says, I want to be living water in your life and I want to meet every need in your life. And it's welling up. And that means it's flowing internally. It's welling up from within us. It doesn't come from outside of us. It comes from within us. It comes from God's Holy Spirit working within us. Because that's where our deepest needs are. And that's where they are met. Well, we move on. The woman's reply shows she still doesn't get it. She says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She misses the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about new life and she is still focused on her physical needs, her physical thirst. Well, I'd have to say this woman is like a lot of people who are blind to the spiritual world because they're so focused on material possessions and physical things. But Jesus keeps talking to her. He persists. He says, I want you to understand the thirst I really want to quench. In fact, the next thing he says to her reveals that he wants to quench a relational thirst in her life. What this, really, this, what this woman really is thirsty for is a relationship, not water. So in verse 16, Jesus says, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replies. 
Up to that point, you notice she'd been quite talkative. She'd been asking questions, she'd been interacting with Jesus, but now she responds with just four words. I have no husband. Why is she there in the middle of the day? She feels guilty about the relationship she's currently in. And guilt has the power to silence us. When you raise matter people feel guilty about, they go quiet very quickly. But Jesus understands. He shows he cares about her deepest needs. He says in verse 17, 18, You're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with, now you have, the man you now live with, is not your husband. And what you said is quite true. Jesus unveils this whole woman's life in just one sentence. He's the real problem. It's relationships. So there she is, standing there. What's she going to do? Jesus has opened the door to her heart and said to her, I can meet the greatest desires in your life. And now he's pointed out the greatest sin in her life. It's not a secret anymore. It's out there. It's open. So what's she going to do? How does she respond? Well, look how she responds. She firstly tries to change the subject. She says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim there. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You think she's feeling a bit unsettled at that point? Because she goes to the biggest argument that the Jews had with the Samaritans and vice versa. The place where they had to worship. Where was the right and proper place to worship? People do that a lot when they're confronted. They talk about something very contentious or religious, hoping to deflect the other person's attention. You see, people are much more comfortable discussing religion or philosophy than facing their sins. And when you're trying to share the good news, it comes down to this issue of God forgiving, and it comes down to this issue of God forgiving the worst things we've ever done. Instead, people like to distract us or divert the conversation instead of talking about the practical, the real and the genuine. They want to talk about reincarnation or aliens or the problem of suffering. Why? Because we get uncomfortable talking about our guilt. And we shouldn't because Jesus wants to take that guilt off us. He wants to lift it off us. Sometimes religion can become the practice of hiding from our guilt rather than finding a way for God to release that guilt, to free us from that guilt. It's not that complicated. Jesus comes and says, I want to forgive you. And you say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And he says, I forgive you. Quote a phrase on TV, it's simple. It's very simple. You see, Jesus doesn't shame the woman by asking her the question. He doesn't condemn her. Instead, he's very honest with her about the differences between the Jews and Samaritans. However, he answers her question in a way that points back to her real need. That's the brilliance of Jesus. 
love Jesus the way he deals with people. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. All this argument, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter because someday we're not going to worship or need to worship in either place. He says, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. He doesn't lie to her. He says the Jews do have a truth that the Samaritans don't have. It's a key point there. The Jews do have the truth. Yes, he says, the time is coming when the true worshippers will worship God in spirit and in truth. That one verse of verse 24, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and truth. It would be one of the most amazing verses about worship in the entire Bible. Why do we worship God in spirit and in truth? Because God is spirit. And we need to worship God with our spirits, connecting with his. And we need to know what we believe. We need to know the truth. Unlike the Samaritans who were sort of distorted in their, their beliefs, they weren't worshipping what was true. And for us, we need to be sure of what we're worshipping so that we know the truth. And that will colour and flavour and direct our worship of God who is spirit. So Jesus cuts to the real answer. He says, here's what you need, genuine worship in spirit and with your heart and in truth. And the woman says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah who's called the Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us. (laughs) First she wants to talk about religion, then she says, well, let's talk later when the Messiah comes. This is getting a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? tries to put Jesus off. But Jesus doesn't let her do that. He looks her in the eye and he says, I'm the one. I'm the one speaking to you. I am he. He won't let her put him off. He says, this is the time. This is your greatest opportunity. This is a climactic moment. And you can feel it building. Just Jesus has just said to this woman, admitted to her that I am the Messiah. And you know, this is the only person he admits this to until he gets to his trial. A Samaritan woman, a non-Jew. Of all the people he speaks to in his three years of ministry, he says this to this Samaritan woman, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one. Then, at that very crucial moment in verse 27, hey, the merry men return, the disciples. They were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, why are you talking with her? So Jesus could tell them what was happening. Instead, like good Jewish men, they ignored her. Brilliant. So while Jesus and the disciples are talking, in verse 28, the woman leaves her water jar and goes back to town. 
clue there. She's intending to come back to get it. She hasn't forgotten it. She left. Right at that climactic point in verse 26, she leaves. And she goes back to the town. But the Holy Spirit is working in her life. She goes back to town and she didn't forget what Jesus had said. In fact, look what she does. She goes back to town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So that's an echo of when Jesus was calling the disciples in John chapter 1. Come and see. Come and check it out for yourself. Come and see Jesus. Listen to him. You can see this woman has learned some some things from Jesus in just those few moments. She appeals to the curiosity of the people in town. Come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. And it certainly caught their attention in the town. And all of a sudden, you see people poking their heads out of doors and windows and this woman is clearly excited. She, she says, he's not the Christ, is he? Could he be the one? And since she says, come and see, she gives them the opportunity to come and see for themselves. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, the disciples were talking to Jesus. They'd gone into the village and bought food. And they, what did they bring back? They brought back lunch, yes, that's right. And now they're encouraging Jesus to eat. Then he says in verse 32, I have food that you know nothing about. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You want a great diet? You want a great diet? Try the John 4, was it? 30, John, John 4, 34 diet. That's a great diet. It's food, real food, to do the will of him who sent me. Spiritual food, food that's going to feed our souls. And that food that Jesus is referring to is doing God's will. That says that doing God's will should be something that satisfies our soul. Doing God's will feeds our souls. What is God's will? In this passage, doing God's will for the disciples is labouring in the harvest. Jesus changes the metaphor from food to the harvest. It's the source of food. He says, don't say four months until the harvest. Open your eyes and look at the fields. The fields are ripe. They're white unto harvest. It's beautiful imagery because most people in that day wore white robes. And it's as though Jesus could see all the white-robed people coming down the road towards him. This is time for a meal, he says to his disciples. Here come the people. The fields are ripe for harvest. Jesus says to them, even now the reaper draws his wages and harvests a crop for eternal life. Notice something very interesting about this passage. The woman goes into town and brings back the whole town. The disciples have just been to town. What they bring back? Food. <laughs> well, I guess Jesus told them to go into, food, into town and buy lunch. They brought back food. But here's this woman who's just heard the message and she brings everybody out to see Jesus. Jesus was saying, guys, you need to learn something. 
from this woman. People want to hear the message, hear the good news of new life. They want to know who Jesus, Jesus really is. Come and see. And here they come down the road. Here's your chance to introduce them. Tell them what's happening. Sometimes there are things that keep us from labouring in the harvest. It could, be with some, it could be sometimes that we're turned off by external things, how people look or who they are. These were Samaritans. The disciples, they were Jews. And they weren't supposed to talk to them. They weren't supposed to witness to them. What's stopping you? Sharing the message of new life. It may be a prejudice that you have. Or we think that the person could never be saved. Or that they may not want to talk about Jesus. Sometimes, you know, we get so caught up in the necessities of life, we don't have time for the priorities of life. The disciples were so caught up in getting the food, they didn't have time to bring the town out to see Jesus. Well, sometimes it's just simply that we put it off. Jesus indicates this when he says, don't say that there's four months until harvest. It's now. The fields are ripe for harvest right now. In verse 39 to 42, the woman brings the people back. And what happens? They too believe in Jesus. Friends, you and I have a message, a message of new life. It's a message that we have to share with the people around us about who Jesus is. I was tempted to actually ask everybody to stand up and just look around. We always say sort of the preschool, but that doesn't... That's important too. But look around. The fields are white, the harvest. There's a heap of people in this whole community in the suburbs around us who are aching to hear the message of new life. Maybe they don't even know it. But Jesus wants to meet the real needs in their hearts and in their lives. We've got this message, and it's a message that's real to each and every one of us. Some people will believe just because of the message that we share. Other people will be drawn. They'll be curious. They'll come and hear the words of Jesus. And many more will believe when they hear his words. And that's where the real power is. The interesting thing about this pattern is where it starts. It starts with somebody sharing their testimony. You see, people can't dispute that. They can't dispute our experience, our life, and what's happened in our life. But if people don't hear our testimony, they don't even get to step two, and that is hearing the words of Jesus. We've got to live it out. If people don't trust what's happening in our lives, if they don't see it happening in our life, they never get as far as hearing the word of Jesus. We have to live it out, second part of the tree. The greatest witnessing tool you and I have is our testimony of what Jesus has done in our life. And if you think, now I don't have much of a testimony, let me tell you you're wrong. Just think of what your life will be like without Jesus. Just think how you'd be handling those problems without the strength of the Lord in your life. 
you begin to hear the testimony that God's given to you. And that's the greatest tool all of us have. That tool, that testimony, will cause some people in our lives to believe just because they hear that. It will cause others to be curious to hear the good news of Jesus. What happened to the Samaritans? Something must have happened to that woman for them to respond so uh, actively to her invitation to come and see Jesus. What happened? Jesus stayed with the Samaritans another two days. Many believed and said to him, Now we know that you are the saviour of the world. Not just the Jews, not just the Samaritans, but to the entire world. He is the saviour of the world. The Samaritan woman simply shared what was real for her. What was the truth? The man she met who really knew who she was. God asks us to share our reality, the truth we know about him. We are not responsible, let me say, with what people do about this. That's God's job. We simply need to share the message of new life with them. My prayer for each of us is that God will give us an opportunity to connect with somebody and to show that we care about them, that we take an interest in them, and that through that connection we may have the opportunity to share with them what Jesus means to us. Maybe somebody in our family. It may be someone you need to make a phone call to. It may be somebody at work. It may be somebody you just run across in the course of normal everyday life, like Jesus did with this woman. Pray for those opportunities. Use your 316441 cards. There should be there's plenty of cards out there for you to take. Pray for four people this year. Four people for one year. That's the 441, John 3.16, we all know that. And we get to pray for a family member, a friend, a neighbour, and someone we get to meet. Pray for those people regularly, consistently. Ask God to give you the opportunity to share the message of new life with them. And pray that their hearts may be open to the Holy Spirit, touching their hearts, leading them to commit their lives to following Jesus. So I pray that God will bring into our lives the excitement and the joy and the opportunity of talking to somebody about the good news of Jesus. That's the food that feeds us. That's the food that energises us. That's the, that's the living water that's welling up inside us and flowing out of us. Would you pray with me? Lord, you've told us many times in your word that the fields are ripe for harvest. And I pray that you will give us all eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see the opportunities you have before us. There are many people in the lives of everyone in this room who have the same kinds of needs that woman had. They're thirsty for relationships. Lord, help us to see those people. Help us to share the answer in a way that they can hear. Not just in a way that makes us feel good, but in a way that communicates the truth to them that communicates your heart's desire to have a relationship with them. Lord, would you give us all the wisdom and the courage to share the good news with those who are around us. And Lord, we want to thank you for meeting the needs in our lives. We thank you that you, we don't have to be thirsty. We thank you that you've quenched this relationship thirst in our lives. And when we're tempted to look at other places other than you to quench that thirst, remind us, 
there's no other living water to be found in this world apart from you. Help us to return to the source, the real water that constantly, freshly, eternally flows within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.